and we'll read the, the psalm in its entirety. The title says, A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. And I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. Again, let us pray. Lord, again, we do ask for your blessing on the reading and preaching of your word. We pray, O Lord, that you would uh, teach us, speak to us in it. Convict us and encourage us in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. So it is, it is my plan uh, in the weeks ahead to begin a series on uh, the book of Revelation. And before uh, we do that, I want to answer the question, why does eschatology matter? After all, Revelation is seen as the book of last things. Um, it is perhaps one of the most neglected books in Holy Scripture, and yet it is a source of hope for the Christian. And so tonight what I want to do in answering that question is to do so from Psalm 73. 
That might not be the first place we would go to or think about going to, but there is a crucial element here, I think, that will be helpful for us in answering that question. And so when we look at Psalm 73, uh, we ought to at least know and believe the very basic things concerning eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things, things to come. And uh, tonight it's not my purpose. And uh, although I might mention it from time to time, Lord willing, uh, in the future, it's not my position to um, talk about sort of the finer points of eschatology. We will discuss those things. And tonight I'm not talking about whether you're pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, or pan-mill. It's all going to pan out. Uh, but I'm talking about the very basics of eschatology. Um, it is true, then, that Christians hold different, different views of eschatology of the end times. And it is also true that some of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith include eschatology. So that's to say there are some things we may disagree about, but there are certain things about eschatology that we must affirm as part of the Christian faith. It's part of what it means to believe the gospel of Christ. And just quickly, let me uh, mention to you some of the statements from the creeds throughout history. We could talk about the Nicene Creed that was in the 300s, about Jesus who sits at God's right hand. It says, He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. The Athanasian Creed, which also states that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, says from there Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And of course, the Apostles' Creed, which we recited together this morning, it says that Christ again will come from there, from heaven, His throne in heaven, and He shall come in order to judge the quick and the dead. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith, the doctrinal document and standard of our church and our denomination, has two chapters about end times. It speaks about in chapter 32 and chapter 33 of the state of men after death and the resurrection of the dead, chapter 32, and then 33 of the last judgment. And it says this, that God has appointed a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given to the Father. The end, the goal or purpose for that is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy and justice and to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. And that the last day is unknown to all men, it tells us, so that we might shake off all carnal security and always be watchful and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And that really is precisely what we find here in the 73rd Psalm. Now, as the title says, it is a psalm of Asaph. Who is Asaph, you might ask? Well, he was one of the Levites in the day of David. Uh, he was a leader of the worship, the music, actually, in the temple. And he's given us at least 12 or so of the psalms under the inspiration of God's Spirit. So as we read, really his faith was put on trial. 
And that's the first thing we'll note here in the text, is that his faith was put on trial. In, in verse 1, uh, he starts off with good news, uh, because he's already been through this trial, he's already come out of it, and he wants us to know what he knows. He says to, that, that truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And so God is good. He's good to Israel. He's good to His people. He's good to His church. He's good to us Christians today. However, if you look at verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Well, why? Verse 3 says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So in other words, here is a guy called by God to be a Levite, to serve day and night in the temple, to lead lead God's people in worship and praise. And he looked out into the world and he saw the wicked. They were proud. They were prospering. And he became envious and jealous. We'll go more into that in the verses that follow. Well, there are several things he notes about them. In verse 4, he says there are no pains in their death. Um, But their strength is firm. They seem to be healthy. And when it's time for them to go, they just check out. You know, it was uh, Caesar that remarked that to die suddenly and unexpectedly is a pleasant way to die. By the way, he said that the day before he died. Um, There are no pains in their death. They live the easy life. That's in verses 5 through 7. Um, they are not in trouble as other men, verse 5, nor are they plagued like the other men. Pride serves as their necklace, their violence. They're known for their violence. Their eyes, verse 7, bulge with abundance. They eat so much that their eyes bulge. They have plenty. They're not lacking. They have more than heart could wish. And so he says that they live the easy life. If you look down at verse 12, it says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. They're prideful. We've already seen that. He reiterates that in verses 8 and 9. They scoff. They speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak proudly or lawfully. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walks throughout the earth. So they have a life of pride. They see their, their um, prosperity and they're proud of it. And also in verse 10 he notes that um, well, it says, therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. It, it is as if he's saying they tend to lead God's people astray, at least those who would profess godliness. And uh, in verse 13, he has his own con- conclusion about his own service to God. In verse 13, he says, he comes to this conclusion after looking out and seeing these things. Surely, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. What does he mean by that? Again, he's a Levite. The Levites had many um, um, times in which they were to wash their hands in order to serve God in the temple. All of the washings. Hebrews talks about that, right? And... uh, His point is, have I cleansed my own heart in vain? Have I repented? Have I sought to live for God? Have I gone through the motions of serving God and worshiping Him 
in vain. In other words, what is it getting me? I don't have this prosperity that the wicked have, and they pay no attention to God. In fact, they boast against God, as he say, as he says here. They say, does God even see these things? Does he know? Does he hear? And this is his dilemma. Does it pay to serve God? You know, it's like this, this past summer, some of us were, were out uh, with the youth and we we're um, on the lake and there's this yacht docked about 20 yards off the, the shore, um, the bank, excuse me. And, uh, and the, the guy, he was wearing an ankle bracelet, the owner of this, this boat. And, um, you know, he was in legal trouble. And one of the guys jokingly said, crime doesn't pay. And here he had this yacht. And it's kind of one of those things. But the point is that, that he saw this and he, he wondered, questioned, is it, is it right? Is it good? Does it pay to serve God? And so that's, that's the struggle that he had. And then, you know, you think about us here today. We, we aren't Levites in this sense. We don't serve God in the way that he served God. But we do seek to serve God as His people. We do attend worship service after worship service after worship service. We seek to live lives that please God. Um, maybe we serve God in ways that are unseen to other men, but we wonder, does God see it? And Is He really taking note of it? Does it pay off in the end? There's a constant battle that we have uh, against the world, our own flesh, and the devil. And maybe you've thought this at times. You've questioned yourself, maybe, to yourself and asked yourself the question, does it really pay to serve God? It's like one summer I spent in New Jersey, in South Jersey. Um, There's this highway that took me in, into town every day because I was doing this internship and, and uh, the cops were everywhere on this road and so I dare not speed because they were pulling over people left and right. There were tons of tractor trailers and one day I got passed by a tractor trailer. I thought, I just got passed by an 18-wheeler, my little Honda Civic. And I thought, you know, is he going to get caught? You know, why can't I speed? Does it pay to go to the speed limit? And, you know, if I were to get pulled over, I would answer that question uh, pretty quickly, I think. But it's kind of like that, but on a larger scale. And so this evidently took its toll on him. In verse 14, he says, I was... Plague. He says, all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. And he's honest, and he lets us know in verse 15 that he was careful with whom he shared these thoughts because he said, if I had said I will speak thus, speak these things, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. He didn't want to lead the others astray. So when there is a Christian who has such questions, he or she needs to be careful with them. They, they share these things. They need to get counsel, no doubt. Go to God's Word and get counsel. Um, but we have to be careful. And uh, i just remind you that this was a leader in Israel. Leader in the church of the living God. But he didn't stay there because God is faithful. As he started off with the psalm, he said, Surely God is good to Israel. And so his faith then is restored. And that's in verses 17 through 21. So in verse 16, he, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful. It was troublesome for me. 
until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end, where they will end up, these wicked who are prospering in the world. He had a turnaround in his crisis. And so how did this happen? What happened? Well, he went into the sanctuary of God, where he would have been confronted, of course, with all of these um, images that God had put there to remind him of heaven above. He, it was there that he heard the word of God. Where God's people would have worshipped. And perhaps he would have come in contact with other godly people within Israel who um, would have spoken the word to him. And so we see here how important it is to remain faithful to God even when we are in the midst of such a crisis or in the middle of a trial which can become a temptation to turn away from God. Because we often assume, well, if bad things happen to me, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care. And that's not true. God loves us. His love is constant. He loves us to the end. Trials are meant for our good. They are used for our good, as Romans 8.28 says. He causes all things to work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. And so this was the turnaround. But I want to ask you a question. What doctrine do you think it was that helped him to have this turnaround? Or maybe I could put it this way. What category of theology was it that caused this shift in his crisis? To make a U-turn and come back to the Lord. It was eschatology. The study of last things. And in particular... It was the doctrine of the judgment of God at the last day. Um, in verse 18, he talks about this. Surely you set them in slippery places. Again, he mentions destruction. How they are brought to desolation. Verse 19, in just a moment. Verse 20, as a dream, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. He's just making these comparisons about how God perceives the wicked. What God thinks about the wicked. Unrepentant men and women and children. And so his heart is grieved. He was vexed in his mind. He confesses, verse 20, he was foolish and arrogant like a beast before God. And so he acknowledges God's patience with him. In verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. God from the Old Testament forward, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even in the bad times, even when you're going through a crisis in your faith, even when you're in the midst of a trial, he is there. And he says, you hold me by my right hand. So who's been with him this whole time? Who has actually brought him back? The good shepherd, the Lord who is the good shepherd. And so he's never left his sight. He's never let go of him. He's always been in the Lord's grip. Verse 24, he talks about the Lord's guidance with your counsel. That's his word. Again, commentary perhaps on what happened in the sanctuary, the turnaround point. And then he says at the end of verse 24, and afterward, receive me to glory. You will, that is, 
Afterward, receive me to glory. Glory is another word for heaven, the very special presence of God where God resides in that way. And he knows that he is headed there. And so, in verse 25, he asks the question, Whom have I in heaven but you? Who is his advocate? His advocate in heaven. Well, perhaps he's speaking prophetically here. There's, there's no other advocate than Christ himself, our advocate with the Father. That's who we have in heaven. And he says, there is none on earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26, he knows what's going to happen to his own body. My flesh and my heart fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then he talks about the wicked again who will perish, they will be destroyed in verse 27. So it is good for him in verse 28 to draw near to God. And he says, I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so now that he is from back to the Lord and his thinking and he trusts in God and it's his calling to declare to others how good and faithful God is. And so as we think about that quickly, what was his trial, the testing of his faith, we see here that the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of faith in God, and it's a life of faith in God's promises. When you think about it, that's what eschatology is by definition. It's a list of the promises of God. And it starts in Genesis 3.15 when God promises the seed of the woman to come and to redeem His people. And of course, from our perspective today, and from the perspective of unfulfilled prophecy in the Bible, we have all of these promises. Like I've said, like he said, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Yes, there's a day of judgment to come, but we fear not that day. And so then, why does eschatology matter? So this is where I want to end tonight. I've got four reasons. There's probably more. But as I think about this passage, these are the four that come to mind and perhaps a few other passages. Eschatology matters, I think it should go without saying, because it is useful. This is a doctrine given to us in Scripture. And what does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3.16? The Scriptures you like, the good Scriptures. No, he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he keeps going and says, I charge you therefore, Timothy that is, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. There's eschatology. He's reminding Timothy of his calling And he's reminding Timothy that he's accountable to God who will judge all men. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's not popular. Convince, rebuke, exhort 
with all long suffering and teaching. And so all scripture is useful for doctrine, for teaching, and therefore eschatology is useful. The book of Revelation is useful. The book of Revelation is to be taught and preached. And perhaps one reason that Christians do not read it is because they don't understand it. Or they don't understand the main themes of it. I, I won't tell you every significant symbol and its meaning in Revelation. Okay, I'm not the Revelation guru. I'm not going to write a book about it. Maybe have helpful ones too. Unhelpful ones at that. But the point is that Revelation is such an encouraging book of the Bible. And perhaps it's the ploy of the enemy to tempt us to think that it's not useful, that it's not helpful. Second, um, eschatology matters because um, it presents a worldview to us which should motivate us to seek the grace of which is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the, the doctrine of the judgment, the last day, that all men will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Think about the doctrine of hell, of eternal torment, where the worm never dies. Jesus taught frequently on Hades and hell, Gehenna and the pit. And so when we think about time from a biblical worldview, it is linear. It's not cyclical like the Greeks thought. All things are headed to an end. And the end will be on the last day. The last day will be that time in which Christ comes back. His second coming, his bodily return. At which time all men will stand before him and be judged. And then we too will judge others as his people. Paul puts it this way in Acts 17, 31. He says in his uh, speech there at the Areopagus, he warns them, these Greeks, that there is a day of judgment coming. He says in verse 31, because he, God, has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance to this, of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the standard by which God will judge, and in fact Jesus will judge the world, is the standard of righteousness. God's holy law. And he's given assurance of that day to come, the day of judgment, by raising Jesus from the dead. We can be assured that there is a last day, that there will be a judgment, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Then there's a third reason here why eschatology matters, and it is that this revealed knowledge of the last things to come should help Christians see the destination of those who have not put their trust in Christ and fill them with sorrow for them. And thus lead us to warn others about the eternal damnation and destruction to come. And of course, God's remedy for its escape. That is to say that the doctrine of eschatology and all the things it entails, especially the judgment and hell 
should lead Christians to have a sorrow for unbelievers, unbelieving co-workers, neighbors, and friends and family who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're on their way to hell. Unless we think that um, we're too good to think that, listen again to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Now, this is the election chapter of the Bible where he talks about predestination and election. Well, before he dives deep into that, in chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, I, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if there's two or three ways that he could swear legitimately and tell us he is telling the truth, that's it. What does he want us to know? That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Do we have a sorrow for unbelievers? If we think about things to come, Judgment and hell in particular. And who is headed there? We should look out into the world and feel sorry for unbelievers. You know, we may pray certain prayers and precatory prayers at times. I get that. That's biblical. I, I understand. Especially when you have just very wicked men seeking to snuff the church out from the face of the earth. You want God to take care of that. And you want the church of Christ to survive. But we should have pity on those who do not know Jesus. And that's one reason that God has revealed the things to come in His Word to us, His church. There's a fourth reason as to why eschatology matters and for, it's for the Christian. Eschatology should bring comfort and courage to every child of God. Why do I say that? You just said, Kevin, that all men, as the Bible says, all men shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, shouldn't we fear? Well, we should, as the Reformers put it, shake off all carnality. We should live in light of the judgment to come. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But as Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, that is today, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to judgment, it's not as though God is going to do the checks and balances and see how we lived our lives, and if we did well enough, we get in. No, that's work salvation. Are we going to be judged? Are our works going to be judged? Yes, 2 Corinthians 3 makes that clear. But if we understand that in other passages... Correctly, we will see that being judged by our works, the purpose of that is to see if our faith was real. Because James 2 says, faith without works is dead. And so we should not rest assured that we're in Christ if we say we're in Christ, if we say we believe in Him, but we have no, no fruit to show for it. And yet, if we do, we can have that assurance and we can rest assured on the day of judgment, as it says in our standards, we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted as being in Christ. So we shouldn't fear 
the day of judgment as Christians. But moreover, as we see here in our text for tonight, Psalm 73, Asaph's lesson should be our lesson. He did not wash his hands in vain. He did not serve God in vain. And how is he reminded of that? Because he went into the sanctuary and saw the day of judgment. The New Testament counterpart for this is 1 Corinthians 15, I think, where Paul talks about the reality, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he makes the point, he says, if Christ is not risen, you're, you're still in your sins. If Christ is not risen, then um, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I kind of personally wonder today if Christians are thinking, well, I just need to throw in the towel, I give up. I mean, after all, where is God? Well, no, look at the resurrection of Christ. But more than that, be comforted and take courage. Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 by saying this, Therefore, in light of the reality of Christ's resurrection, in light of the surety of your resurrection, which is rooted in the resurrection of Christ, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, In the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We need to know it so we can believe it, so we can do it. So when it comes to comfort, how is it that we can have comfort in light of things to come? We can have comfort because this present world will not continue in its fallen state forever. We look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in that new heavens and new earth, guess what? It says in Revelation 21, God shall wipe away every tear personally. And we will be with God forever. We can have comfort because God who is just will by no means clear the guilty. Now for us, He's cleared our guilt because Christ has taken our guilt on the cross and and He's... I'm taking the wrath of God in our place. But for the wicked who are unrepentant, who do terrible things, unspeakable things, whether it be to children or to adults, one another, they're going to get their day in court. The court of heaven. And Asaph is reminded of this. It's like C.S. Lewis put it. When Aslan comes back, he's going to make all things right. We need to remember that. Because some people slip through the court system. There is injustice in the land. We need to be reminded of the day of judgment. And remind them of the day of judgment who do not repent. But also we have comfort because as we travel on this journey towards heaven, God is with us. He holds us, Asaph says, by the hand. Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. He holds our hand. and He's in the Father's hand, no one will snatch us out of his hand, he says in John chapter 10. And as far as courage, we have the courage then to persevere unto the end. There's a book called These Last Days, and uh, it is about the end times from a biblical perspective. There are different authors in there. One of those authors is Paul Tripp. And he talks about the Christian life. And he compares the Christian life 
to camping. I suppose in a tent. Tent camping. Okay, that's really, well, I can't say that. I have camped in uh, campers before, but I know well what it's like to camp in a tent. And he says the main purpose of camping is to make one long for home. That's his take on it. But just bear with me. Bear with Mr. Tripp. It's to make one long for a home. After a while, you notice that your back hurts. You know, you've been lying on the ground for a few days. And then you begin to notice that you are longing for your refrigerator. You're tired of dealing with ice and the melted ice. Then you long for your stove, which requires no firewood or propane, I guess. And so he said... But today we have Winnebago's and we have these expensive campers. It says maybe we've been weighed down with too many clothes, too much food, and too much entertainment. And he says we've forgotten what it's like to be pilgrims. And yes, personally I hold to what I believe is a victorious view of eschatology. But at the same time I know I'm a pilgrim passing through. So what about you? Do you long for home? Do you long for heaven? Does it affect the way you live now? And does the hope of heaven give you hope, even joy, comfort, and courage? Does eschatology matter? Well, of course it does. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for revealing not only your commands, your law, which lead us to Christ and show us how to live in light of the forgiveness of sins that we have from Him. We thank You for giving us promises, for showing us to where it is that we are headed, the new heavens and the new earth. We pray that You bless our study in Your Word in the mornings and in the evenings here at Providence, that we would serve You better. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.